Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today comes from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, beginning with verse 20, on to chapter 3, ending with verse 9. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 996. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is God's word. I invite you to find your Bibles once again and make your way back to Second Timothy chapter 2. As we look at this text together, it's always good to have your Bible in hand because the reality is that it doesn't really matter what I say, it's what God's Word says. And if I'm saying something other than what He's saying, you go with Him every time. So it's good to keep, keep the Word open before you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, what a privilege to open Your Word together. Thank You that You are a God who speaks and that you have given an abiding witness to your truth, uh, an ever-fresh word here in your scriptures. And so would you give us ears to hear this morning? Would you give us eyes to see you? And would your spirit take what your word says and change our hearts with it, God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of our rituals every year about this time as we prepare for the Sandy Island Retreat is to scour our house looking for flashlights. Uh, As many of you know, and some of you are about to discover, with very few exceptions, there are no bathrooms in the cabins on the island. And so when it's 3 a.m. and there are 50 yards of rocks, trees, and roots to navigate when nature calls and in order to make it to that bathroom without incident, you need 
a trusty flashlight. And so every time this year, usually Thursday night about 9 a.m. just before Target closes in case we have to run and get more, we are scouring the house, looking in drawers and closets, trying to find working flashlights. Because if a flashlight doesn't work right, it's no good. It has a purpose. It's, it's supposed to shine light on the path where you're going. And so if it's too dim or if it flickers on and off or, or just plain won't turn on, even with new batteries, it is of no use to you. That's not going to get the job done. You're just going to leave that one in the drawer and, uh, and move on. Well, as a church, we have been given a calling and a purpose as well. There is a reason that God is redeeming a people for himself and sending them out into the world in his name. We are called to shine the light of Christ into a dark and decaying world. To bring a message of hope that's able to actually pierce through the darkness that exposes it for what it is and shows that there is a better way than what this dark world has to offer. There is Jesus. But for that to happen, for the church to be able to fulfill that calling, to be useful to God in his mission, we have to be a flashlight that actually works when you turn it on. If our light is dim or if it flickers intermediately, there's an inconsistency to it, it's not any good for piercing the darkness. Nor is it any good if we shine it in the wrong way, if we only shine it on people's sin but never shine it on the Savior. In our passage this morning, Paul uses a different metaphor to make the same point. He talks about vessels or dishes in a a more contemporary term. Look again at chapter 2, verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, in your house, there are some dishes that you use for honorable things like eating off of or serving food. And there are some that you use for dishonorable or dirty things. And, and we tend to make a pretty clear distinction in our minds. If I've got to mix up paint, I'm not going to grab a drinking glass out of the cupboard. I'm going to use a plastic glass or something cheap that I can throw away after I've ruined it. Uh, if you run out of cereal bowls in the morning and they're all dirty and in the dishwasher or something like that, you're not going to grab the dog dish for breakfast. That's a dishonorable use. You need a, a, a dish that's you, you know, available for honorable. And, and so God is looking for clean dishes to serve the meal of the gospel. He wants his people to be useful, set apart as holy. Actually, good enough, not, not good enough in and of ourselves, but fit for our calling of preaching the gospel. Again, to be a flashlight that works. And that's a challenge today. That is a challenge today. Not only do we live in a world that is increasingly uh, darker and darker by day, it seems. It just seems like there's just a surge of ugliness uh, in the world today. And, and it's, it's discouraging. 
But, but not only is that true, we live in a nation that is increasingly suspicious of Christ. That's suspicious of biblical orthodoxy. So, you know, that sees the worldview and vision of Scripture as outdated or even backward and bigoted. A world that is offended by the idea that anybody other than me might actually have a claim on my life. So, so we like the idea of Jesus, my friend who makes me happy, but we don't so much like the idea of Jesus, the king who calls me to come and die. That one feels offensive, heavy-handed. And that suspicion that we see is compounded by the fact that the church has given the world plenty to complain about. Scandal, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, indifference, holier-than-thou attitudes that alienate instead of invite. It robs us of our credibility and it distracts from our actual message. But we also face another layer of challenge in that even as the world is getting darker and darker, there are many in the church who have an increasing desire to be accepted and approved of by that increasingly dark world, which creates a a dilemma, right? And so it's not just the world that's become suspicious of biblical orthodoxy. Many in the church today have become suspicious of biblical orthodoxy. You can almost hear echoes of of Satan's conversation in the garden uh, almost daily on social media. Did God really say because we don't want to look like those people. And, and so if we're going to be a faithful witness, if we're going to be useful vessels in this fallen world, in this unique time and place here in New England, where I think you could take all of these trends and then multiply them by 10, there are two temptations that we have to avoid. The first is the temptation to be contaminated by the world and so lose our unique witness so to be drawn into the ways of the world or become so eager to be accepted by it that we just end up becoming like it and therefore have nothing unique to offer in terms of the message of christ to be useful we must be holy set apart we must be like jesus that's the first temptation but the second is to be so uncomfortable and appalled by the world or so afraid of being contaminated by it that we misuse our witness. We use truth like a weapon, lobbing our condemnation from a safe distance, but never actually getting close enough to love people and show them Christ. To be useful to God, we must not only be holy, but we must also be humble as well, gentle, again, like Jesus. Without holiness, our witness is useless. We, send a comp- we don't represent God. But without humility, we misuse it. We alienate people instead of pointing them to Christ. And so a useful witness, an honorable vessel, one that's truly useful to God, must be both holy and humble. And that's the point Paul's making in our passage this morning. I want to look first at the urgency of holiness in the church. The urgency of holiness. Now, 
right away, holiness just has a really bad name today. Already, there's just this, we can't talk about holiness. That, that makes us feel, you know, when people talk about holiness, uh, they usually assume one of a few things. Either that you're saying that you're perfect, you know, if you're going to make a big deal about holiness, you're trying to suggest that you've got it all together, that, that, that you're unlike those people over there. That's one thought that often comes to mind. Or, or that you're saying that uh, you're talking about performance, a kind of legalism, where we obey God in order to be accepted by God. We put on a show to look good for others. Or a kind of outdated killjoy. That Holiness is a stuffy, prudish puritanism that, that's too afraid of the world to have any fun. There's all sorts of bad press about the idea of holiness today. We, we assume holier than thou. But holiness is a biblical idea. And not only is it biblical, it's an urgent necessity for the people of God. It is not a prerequisite to becoming the people of God. It's not as though God accepts us because we're holy. But it is a product of becoming the people of God. God accepts us by grace through faith in Jesus, and His Spirit is at work in us to make us holy, fueling lives of repentance. which means saying no to sinful behaviors and attitudes in order to be more like Jesus. It, to, holiness is being set apart. It's, it's being different, unlike the world, and more like Christ. So loving what he loves, or thinking what he thinks, or saying what he says, or serving how he serves, that's the picture of holiness. It's Christ-likeness. That's what we're called to. And you can see the urgency of that throughout our passage. In chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, who's his protege and his child in the faith as he's writing uh, what was most likely his last letter before being killed for his faith, uh, he says to Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you're going to be a useful vessel, Timothy, in your witness to Christ, you must flee these youthful passions and instead pursue what is good, what is godly. You can no longer give yourself the license to tolerate in your life what you know is going to corrupt your heart. That's what he's saying. Flee youthful passions. Don't give yourself license to tolerate in your life what you know is going to corrupt your heart. And, and he, he describes it as this youthful passion, I think, because that's the kind of behavior you often see in kids. You know, they know something's bad for them, but they want to do it anyway because it's fun. And, and, and that's so easy to operate that way. I know what's good. I know what's true, but I really want to do that anyway. Paul says flee. Run in the other direction from that. Don't flirt with it. Get away. And run instead toward virtue, toward righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And so we need to take holiness 
seriously in the church, seriously in our, in our own lives. Where am I giving myself permission to indulge in things that I know will corrupt my heart? It's a question I need to ask. Is it in what I eat or drink? In what I listen to? In what I watch? In, what, in who I hang out with? And I'm not talking about a list of rules. I'm talking about knowing myself well enough to know what's going to help me love Jesus more and what's going to draw me further away from him. Being honest with myself about where my heart is at. For me, I have to, me personally, I have to think carefully about what I watch. I love movies. That's like my relaxation mode. If I've got downtime and no demands on me, which isn't necessarily that often, but if I do, I'm going for an action movie. You know, some Marvel superhero movie or something like that. Um, and just, you know, films in general. I really enjoy that kind of stuff. But if I'm honest, there are some movies I know that contain some scenes that are not going to be good for my heart. They're just not. And I can rationalize it. It's, it's good art. You know, it's film. It's not a movie. It's film. You know, I can rationalize it. It's good storytelling. Um, but I know that if I watch it, my heart is going to go places that do not honor Jesus. And so what if instead I spent that time, the time I, I would give myself permission to indulge in sin, what if I instead spent that time pursuing Christ and, and filling my heart with the things that are going to produce righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Pursuing that, not this. How much more useful would I be to God and his kingdom? Now, that sounds prudish. That sounds kind of just, again, holier than thou, puritanical. Boy, that's legalistic. Unless your goal is loving Jesus, pleasing him and honoring him with what I do, being faithful and useful to him. Is it prudish for a wife to turn down the offers of other men in order to be faithful to her husband? No, that's called love. And loyalty. And so holiness is about our love and loyalty to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We find way more joy in loving him than we do in anything that this world can offer. Unless we think that guarding holiness isn't really our problem... You know, yeah, I get it, holiness, rah, rah, we're on with that, but that's really, you know, we don't have to worry about that. Lest we're tempted to think that it, it's not something we need to worry about, Paul goes on in chapter 3 to warn Timothy about what's coming for the church. In fact, this letter is filled with examples of people who've gone astray from Christ because they've been wooed by the world. So look at chapter 3 with me. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And just to note that, that when the New Testament uses that phrase, last days, it's not talking about something way off in the future you don't have to worry about. It's talking about the time between Christ's first and second coming. That's how the New Testament uses that phrase. So this is Paul's problem and it's our problem. 
there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now we can read that laundry list of sin. Paul loves to give these long lists of of how this world is broken. And it's easy to think that he's simply describing the world around us. It's kind of like, yeah, I know those people. Amen. But he's talking about what's coming into the church. He's not just talking about the world here. He's talking about how the world seeps into the people of God. People who, in the name of Jesus, as though they're serving him, will be lovers of self, lovers of money. I mean, think about that one. I mean, that one's easy to see today, right? People who, in the name of Jesus, have ministries that that are designed simply to line their own pockets. That one's not hard to spot. But people who, in the name of Jesus, are abusive, heartless, reckless, and so on. They may have the appearance of godliness. They might do some religious-looking things. But they are denying its power because they're not allowing Jesus to actually change their lives. In short, they will eventually be exposed as frauds. And what happens to the witness of the church then? What happens to the witness of the church then? Just as Jonas and Jambres, which is probably a, a reference to the two magicians in Egypt, uh, just as they opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, and listen to it, disqualified regarding the faith. Disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So without holiness, our witness becomes useless to the Lord. We lose our credibility because of our hypocrisy. And, more importantly, you cannot win the world by becoming like it. You forsake the very message that's going to make a difference. You can't win the world by becoming like it or by changing truth in order to become more acceptable to the world. This was what liberal Protestantism thought it must do at the turn of the 20th century, 100 plus years ago, if the church was going to survive. It was the boon of modernism and and science and rational thought. People no longer believed in things like miracles or the supernatural. We we know better now. And, And so... The church was told, you can't keep treating those stories in the Bible like they're actually true. You need to demythologize them. You need to you know, find like the useful nugget in it, but, but stop pretending like this is really supernatural stuff. 
We know from science people don't walk on water. We know that the dead aren't risen. Those are just myths. You're embarrassing yourself and nobody's going to believe you. That's what the church was told. And that the church must change or die. And so mainline Protestantism changed. They got rid of the miracles. They got rid of the supernatural. They got rid of the Bible's authority. They got rid of the cross. They got rid of sin. And 100 years later, mainline Protestantism has declined at so severe a rate that it's estimated to have 23 Easter's left. That's the rate of decline. They changed the truth so the church wouldn't die. And they committed suicide in the process. And yet, despite that obvious historical example, what many progressives are telling the evangelical church today is the exact same thing. You must change Or you're going to die. Not so much about metaphysics, but now about morality. Your moral system is backwards. It's out of date. And if you don't update it, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of history. But you cannot abandon the truth in the name of Jesus and have any meaningful witness left. Without holiness we become useless to God. So that's the first temptation that we have to avoid. This temptation to become like the world for whatever reason. But the second temptation is just as important and just as necessary today. And that's the urgency of humility. The urgency of humility. It's really easy when we're really convinced of the truth of Scripture to become jerks about it. To become, you know, to make a hobby or even a vocation out of proving to the world that you're right. And you can spot heresy from a mile away and you're not afraid to call it out on Facebook. But having a flashlight that works is not enough. You also need to know how to use it in such a way that's actually going to help people rather than repel them. Whenever you know we're on the retreat and walking on one of these dark paths, of course, my two little girls, they want to hold the flashlight, right? But whenever they hold the flashlight, they shine it on basically everything except the ground in front of them where it's actually useful. They're they're trying to see things that are 150 yards away where their little beam just isn't going to get there. Or whenever you meet somebody else on the trail, what do they do? Shine it in their face to see who it is. That's what we do with the message of the gospel sometimes. We shine it in people's face, blinding them, putting the spotlight on their sin. Or... We're too afraid to get close enough that we just hold the beam from 150 yards away and do nobody any good. We can stand for truth, and we must. But shining a light from a long distance does nobody good, and shining it in someone's face is simply all about me, really. And so we must handle the truth with humility if our witness is going to be useful to God. 
And that's what Paul discusses in chapter 2, 23 to 26. So look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now tell somebody who's really passionate about truth and really convinced that they're right to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. It's like cutting off oxygen. But I, but I know I'm right on this one. I can win this debate. And, and you know, I, I am guilty of this. I'm so guilty of this. There are so many times where I'll see some comment uh, online or whatever, Twitter, Facebook or something, and I'll spend like an hour or more drafting a response in my head uh, of what I would say. And it's just like, you know, it's like a drug. And I'm, I'm looking at that and it's like, I, I can't let that go. I, ha- I have to weigh in on, on, on that debate. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes the church must speak prophetically into the world. But so often, all I'm doing is pouring fuel onto a foolish, ignorant controversy that really isn't worth my time and is simply going to create more division than anything else. We subtly begin to use the truth as a weapon, which actually, again, pushes people away instead of drawing them in. Instead, Paul says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. To everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So notice how it's not just truth that God uses to get through to people. It's truth wrapped in kindness. Be kind to everyone, even those who disagree with you and tell you you're stupid for believing what you believe. It's not just correcting your opponents, it's doing so with gentleness. Not trying to score points, but speaking the truth in love. And that often requires patiently enduring evil. Putting up with things that, that you would love to just call out and cast aside. Putting up with, with the brokenness of this world in order to get through to those who are enslaved by it. I can't make everything an issue in this conversation. So what's the main thing? How do I show them Christ? That's the main thing. So not placing myself above them, but coming alongside them, willing to get messy, sharing their burdens and loving them the way Christ has loved us. It's the truth in kindness about which Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So it does no good to win the argument if in the process I lose the person. It does no good to win the argument if in the process I lose the person because I'm a jerk or I'm harsh or condemning or whatever. We need humility. We need kindness. And we need it desperately in the church today. 
uh, when roughly 85% of young people outside of the church and 47% of people, young people inside the church conclude that Christianity is hypocritical, and 9 out of 10 describe the church as judgmental, something's not good. Something's not right with that picture. Now, you're always going to have people who, simply because they disagree, will, will write you off as hypocritical and judgmental. I mean, Paul warns Timothy throughout this letter that he better be prepared to suffer for the gospel. But we shouldn't give them a reason for those charges to stick. That's the point. To be disagreeable or arrogant in our interaction or or inconsistent in our life and our message, what we say and how we actually live. We need both holiness and humility. We need to hold fast to the truth and speak the truth in love. So what does that mean for me? Here's some questions you can ask yourself. Am I humble enough to care more about listening to my friend than making my point? That's a question to think about. Do I care more about listening to my friend than making my point? Do I give them space to be honest about questions and frustrations? Or do I have to just jump on every little detail right away? Am I willing to admit when I'm wrong or when I don't know the answer? Do I hurt with them where they hurt? Do I validate their criticisms of the church when they're legitimate and listen patiently even if they're not? Do I love them as a person rather than treat them as a project? Do I affirm their dignity even when we disagree on the things of God? Am I secure enough in Christ that I don't have to prove I'm right before the end of the conversation? Am I content enough in Christ to speak the truth in love and leave the results in God's hands? Of course I want them to meet Jesus. There's nothing better I could want for them. But do I, in my conversation, in my relationship, recognize that before God I am no different? A human made in God's image, a sinner in need of grace. It's not me versus them. It's all of us standing together before a holy and loving God in need of a Savior. Paul reminded Timothy in chapter 1, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And that's the heart of humility. Remembering that we don't serve God because we're special or because we figured things out, but only by grace through faith in Jesus. As Paul told Timothy in his first letter, and as our our banners remind us here every Sunday morning, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Not you, not any of you, me. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We are simply dishes that were once dirty and disgusting, that have been cleansed by Christ, and now by his grace as we walk in repentance and cleanse ourselves, are useful to God. That's all we are. A couple of years ago, we took a a family trip up to New Hampshire and decided to bring our dog Riley with us. And we forgot to bring a water dish in the car. And so at some point, we stopped at a dollar store, and I went in and I bought a cheap plastic bowl. Not a dog dish, just a regular old bowl. And we used that for for water dish. And since it was a normal bowl and not a dog bowl, when we got home, I ran it through the dishwasher and I put it in the cupboard with all the regular bowls. And the first time I tried to serve my kids breakfast in that bowl, you should have seen their faces. That's a dog dish. But it's been washed. It's been cleansed. It is now fit for human consumption. I eat out of that bowl. And now the kids do too, even though they still call it the dog bowl. <laughs> but that's us. That's all we are. And, and if a dishwasher could take a plastic bowl defiled by dog germs and make it useful for breakfast, what can the blood of Christ do in our lives to make us useful to him and his word and his witness? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Holiness and humility make us useful to God. Let's pray. Lord, would that be so in our church and in our lives. And God, we confess that so often that feels like a contradiction in terms. That if we're humble, we can never acknowledge being holy. And if we're holy, we're just arrogant and proud, not humble. And yet, Lord, both of those are true in Christ. And it's by His grace and the power of His Spirit that it's true. And so we pray that it would be true among us, Lord, that You would reveal in our hearts the sin that keeps us from being useful to You and that You would soften our hearts to be humble and kind as we seek to love others with the message of grace. Would we be useful to You, God? Would we not waste who we are and what we do as a church, but would we be useful to you and to your gospel mission here in the Metro West and in every corner of the earth? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.